happy Thanksgiving to all of you here at Central, also those of you who are tuning in from one of our regionals around the city. We're in a special series in which we're looking at who God is and the implications that has for each of our lives. And I trust that as you have been exploring who God is and growing to know Him more deeply in your personal time with Him and also uh, through your small group of friends, uh, that you are growing in your gratitude and your thanksgiving for God, for who He is and what He's doing in and through your life. Now, last time we explored what the Bible has to say about our loving and our gracious God. Today we're going to explore the holiness and the justice of God. But before we do, would you stand with me as we dedicate our time to God in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, when we think of your unconditional love and amazing grace, our hearts are filled with thanksgiving. Well, Lord, we admit to you that when we think of your holiness and your justice, our first thought is not one of gratitude, but more often it is of fear, an unhealthy fear. And Lord, I pray that as a result of our time in your word today, we will have a different mindset about who you are. A different mindset about your holiness and your justice and that we would live differently as a result. That we would relate to you differently. That we would relate to you more freely and openly and intimately in the days ahead. I pray that our hearts would be open to you, Lord, and that we would respond to whatever it is you say to us. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. This past weekend, a young father approached me after the service and said, Pastor, thank you for your message on the love and grace of God. It is so incredibly reassuring to know that God isn't mad at me all the time and that there is nothing that I can do that will make him love me any more or any less than he does right now. But I have a concern, he said. A number of my friends, they love teachings on the unconditional love of God because it gives them license to live any way that they want to live. Some are making sinful lifestyle choices and are just going through the motions of their Christian faith and they don't seem to be concerned about that because somehow they've come to believe that their sins have all been paid for by Jesus on the cross. And then he said, Pastor Henry, does God's unconditional love mean that we don't need to be concerned about sin anymore? Well, I pointed him to Romans chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul writes, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Paul's short answer to this young father's question is, By no means. God wants us to take sin seriously because it's destructive. However, to fully understand why 
We shouldn't be flippant about sin. We need to explore another very important aspect of God's character. And that is his holiness and justice. Stuart Briscoe tells the story of an 11-year-old golfer who, who was so good at the sport of his, at his age that he was able to compete with 16-year-olds and beat most of them. One day he made a bad shot. And in reaction, he took his club and he threw it as far as he could. His father, who happened to be golfing with him at the time, casually walked over and picked up the golf club and turned around and walked back to him, handed it to him and said, Son, here's your club. The next time you do that will be the last time that you set foot on this golf course. That 11-year-old boy was Jack Nicholas, And he took his father's advice and his father's words seriously. And those of us who appreciate golf and the golfing skills of Jack Nicholas are probably glad that Jack's father extended grace to him and, and, and didn't end his golfing career at the age of 11. But we're also glad that his father didn't just say, Naughty, naughty son, you shouldn't do that. Jack Nicholas became a better person, a better golfer, because there was not just a tenderness, but a toughness in his father's love. Our Heavenly Father's love is like that. There is a tenderness, but also a toughness to his character. Both are absolutely necessary. We'll never know God or fully appreciate His love and grace without also understanding His holiness and justice. So let's dive in to explore what the Bible has to say about this other aspect of our God's character. The Bible says that God is holy. Psalm 99 verse 9 says, Exalt the Lord our God and Worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Moses, along with the people of Israel, sang this to the Lord. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? The word holy comes from the word whole and means to be complete. And that is how God is. He is perfect. He's not lacking in anything. He is totally pure. The absolute standard of ethical and moral purity. Our God doesn't conform to some holy standard. He is the standard. He is without sin. He never does anything wrong. Now often, you know, when we think of holy people, we, we think of unhappy people. We think of miserable people who have been steeped in vinegar or who've been soaked in embalming fluid. Well, there are people like that. But it's not because they are holy in the biblical sense. No, it's because they're often religious legalists with a self-righteous, critical, and a mean spirit. God's holiness is not like that. His holiness is actually beautiful because God is beautiful. 
God is beautiful because he's filled with truth. He is filled with love, joy, and peace. He is absolutely what every person deep down inside longs to be and what God intended for all of us to be when he first created us. Imagine how different our world would be if everyone lived according to what is true, did what was right, and were filled with genuine love and joy and peace. Our world would be beautiful. Our families, our marriages, our relationships would be beautiful. They would be holy. Well, that is what God intended for our world to be like. You see, because God is good and holy, everything he does and everything that he created can be none other than good and holy. When he created the heavens and the earth, he said it was good. When he created Adam and Eve, he said it was very good. God's holiness is all about his goodness and wanting things to stay good. And to stay beautiful. And to stay right. And if you think about it, you know, we long the same things for ourselves. I mean, if given a choice between pure water and impure water, would you not want pure water? If given a choice between eating food out of a garbage can and eating off of a fine banquet table, would you not want to feed off the fine banquet table? And so when we read in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve disobeyed God, at that moment their relationship with God was fractured because they lost their God-given goodness. And they were separated spiritually from God, not because God is a mean, ruthless despot, but because God is holy and good. He cannot tolerate that which isn't. He can't tolerate sin. He can't tolerate evil or rebellion. Habakkuk 1.13 says about God, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Notice it says God cannot look on evil. In other words, his issue is with the sin. It is not with the sinner. John MacArthur, he illustrates the difference this way. He says, if your body is infected with cancer, you will do everything you can to preserve your body, to keep it strong and to care for it. But you will also do everything you can to destroy the cancer. You see, you hate the cancer, but you don't hate your body. Similarly, God loves us, but he despises our sin because he is holy. He despises sin and evil because he is fiercely protective of that which is good, right, and pure. And it is this aspect of his holiness that is dangerous. In C.S. Lewis's famous Narnia chronicle, The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, the children find themselves in the home of the beavers who tell them that they are going to take them to see King Aslan, the lion, who represents Jesus Christ. Lucy's intimidated at the prospect of meeting a lion. And so she asks, is he safe? Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? 
course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so it is with God. While God's holiness is good and beautiful, there's an aspect to his holiness that is not safe. It is not safe when we mess with what is good, what is right, and what is beautiful. In the scriptures, God's holiness is often likened to fire. Hebrews 12, 29, God's referred to as a consuming fire. Fire is a beautiful thing. It's, a, it's the gift of God, a gift of God. It keeps our homes warm. It, it warms up our food. It blesses us in numerous ways. And yet, if we fail to respect it, it can destroy things. It can burn us. It can actually, it can actually kill us. In the same way, we need to be consciously aware each and every day that God is not safe when we mess with what he has ordained to be right and good. Not because God doesn't love us or accept us or because he's even angry at us. But because it is his nature to reject that which is sinful and evil and to protect and restore what is right and good. In fact, ever since man rebelled in the garden, God has been on a mission to restore righteousness, to restore our relationship with him, to restore our relationship with each other. It's just who he is. It's God's nature to always seek to make right what's wrong, to make pure what's impure, to bring peace where there's discord, goodness where there's evil and corruption, beauty out of ashes and brokenness, and light where there is darkness. It's who he is. He can't help it because he is holy. Furthermore, God is just. His justice flows from his holiness. In the book of Jude we read, See the Lord coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done. In John 3.38 we read, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. Because God is holy, he cannot ignore sin or injustice. Because he knows that sin destroys. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God's being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of men. This verse teaches that God's wrath is directed towards sin and toward rebellion. Now, sometimes God enacts his justice immediately. Other times, for reasons only God knows, he chooses to wait. And still at other times, he chooses to extend mercy and grace instead of justice. But even when he extends mercy, his justice demands that someone pay for the wrongs that have been committed. 
In fact, it's for this very reason that Jesus went to the cross. In order for God to extend his grace and mercy, someone had to pay for all the sins of the world. And Jesus willingly did so out of his love for us. You see, there is a consistency in God, a straightness about him. It is no accident that we often refer to criminals as crooks. Crooks are so called because they are crooked. They are not straight. But you see, God is straight. In all eternity, God has never done a crooked or an unjust thing. His judgment is always right. And a necessary reaction to objective moral evil. Now, some of you at this point are probably thinking, well, I don't want to guess what some of you are probably thinking right now, but, but some of you at this point, you know, there might be one or two of you, are probably thinking, Pastor, I'm having a hard time seeing God as both loving and wrathful at the same time. James Byron Smith gives excellent insight to this question. He writes, one of the major reasons we have difficulty integrating God's love and his wrath into our way of thinking is because we tend to have a distorted understanding of the love of God and also of the wrath of God. He says, for starters, God's love is not like the love that tends to be shared between two infatuated teens whose love is often fueled by purely irrational feelings. You know, like the boy who looks his sweet puff in the eyes and says, Honey, my love for you is so deep I'm prepared to climb every mountain. I'm prepared to swim every sea for you. But then reality hits and after climbing the first half of the first mountain, his feeling of love begins to fade as quickly as his hunger increases and he chooses a cheeseburger over his loved one. That is not the kind of love the Bible is referring to when it speaks of God's love. Smith says God's love is more like a healthy parent's love for their child. The Bible uses the Greek word agape love to describe God's love for us. Which is a decision to love. Even when the other person doesn't deserve to be loved or even when the other person fails to love us back. It is a love that doesn't change when circumstances change. Rather, agape love is an unselfish love that puts your interests ahead of my own, even if it involves personal sacrifice on my part. That is what God's love is all about. In the same way, it's important that we understand that God's wrath isn't directed at us. It's directed at our sin. In fact, Smith points out, whereas God's love and holiness is part of God's essential character, God's wrath wouldn't even exist if there had never been evil and sin. If there were no sin, there would be no wrath. In other words, you see, God's wrath is an expression of his love. God pours out his wrath on evil and sin because he loves us and because he is fiercely and forcefully opposed to anything 
that has the potential of destroying us or our relationship to him. John Ortberg points out that when God exercises his wrath, he is never out of control. Like a person who loses control and has a fit of unpredictable rage, which is often what we think of when we think of the word wrath. Nor is his justice cruel or vindictive or retaliatory. His judgment is always motivated from a heart of love and his holy desire to protect what is good and beautiful. It is not God's will or his desire to punish anyone or to take the life of anyone. In Ezekiel 18, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. God doesn't want anyone to perish. He longs for everyone to embrace the life that he offers. And we see example after example of this in the scriptures where God is patient, sometimes for decades, sometimes for hundreds of years, and he will bend over backwards to make a way of escape possible for those who humble themselves and ask for his forgiveness. All that to say that God's wrath is an objective, rational response to sin and evil that comes actually from a heart of love. Now surely we can see this. I mean, why are we outraged when we hear of someone beating their spouse or cheating on their spouse? Why are we sickened when we hear of children being molested or being pulled into human trafficking? Because we are created in God's image, which means all of us have this built-in sense of justice. And when our car is burglarized or valuables are stolen or loved ones are attacked, we demand those responsible be brought to justice. Well, God has even a greater sense of justice than we do. And when he sees evil and justice in the world, his indignation is multiplied many times over. I mean, if God just sat on his throne like a doting old grandfather and just winked at sin and injustice and he, and he didn't promise as he does, but if he didn't promise to deal justly with the terrorist who killed our friend or the rapist who attacked our daughter or the person who assassinated the character of our son, in short, if he didn't promise to deal justly with all forms of sin in his way and in his time, we would not consider him to be loving at all. Even as we would not consider a parent to be loving who's really seeking to be popular with her kids rather than parenting them and doing what's right and exercising tough love. Now people say to me, why doesn't God stop the drunk driver? or the rapist, or the murderer before they hurt someone. Well, sometimes he does. We just don't know about all the times that he spares us from suffering and pain. And we won't know until we get to heaven. Don't assume it's not happening, folks. When we get to heaven, we're going to have a big surprise in that area alone. But of course, we know that sometimes he does allow trouble to come our way. And it would be presumptuous of me to assume I know why, because he's God and I'm not. 
But I do believe one reason he doesn't intervene sometimes is because he is committed to honoring our freedom to make choices. You see, when we ask God to stop or, or, or to step into history and, and to stop people from making bad choices, we need to realize that we're asking him to take away our freedom of choice. We are asking him essentially to turn all of us into androids and to program us to always make the right choices. And I trust that you see the implications of that. Unless we're prepared to give up our freedom to make choices and to become androids, which God never wants, we need to accept the fact that we live in a broken world, a broken world that God never intended, but a world where people will sin and make evil, short-sighted decisions that will hurt not only themselves, but also other people. If we want God to rid our world of all that's evil and that's bad, then we need to realize it will require him to actually take us out as well. Because each one of us is capable of making sinful choices every day. Sinful choices that we may believe aren't hurting anyone. But God knows better. God knows that sin destroys and that our choices, whether our sinful choices hurt us or they hurt other people or both, our choices are adding to the pain and the hurt of our world. But even when his actions or lack thereof don't make any sense to us, the Bible calls us to trust him. To believe he knows what he's doing and that he will deal justly with every injustice in his time. And his way. In Romans twelve nineteen. God promises it is mine to avenge. I will repay says the Lord. Whatever wrongs have been committed against us. Whatever wrongs have been committed against someone else. God calls us not to take matters into our own hands. But to trust him to ensure that justice occurs. We can trust him in this because he is holy. And because he is just. Now, earlier in this message, I told you about a father who approached me after the service last week. And he asked, does God's unconditional love mean I don't need to be concerned about sin? Does it mean that God isn't concerned about my sin? Well, let me illustrate what we've learned so far by telling you my response to his question. I start out by asking him, do you love your children? And he said, well, of course. I said, if your daughter had a, a habit of cutting herself, would you still love her? He said, well, I wouldn't be happy about what she's doing, but I'd still love her. I said, would you do everything in your power to get her to stop? And he said, yes, of course. If she continued to cut herself, would you be upset? Would you be even angry? He said, yes, I'd be very upset. I said, why? Because I love her, he said. And I want her to live the life that God intended her to live. And I don't want her to destroy herself. 
I said, if in your attempt to get her to stop, if she were to tell you that she hated you, if she were to tell you and accuse you of being mean, if she were to accuse you of not loving her and accepting her, how would you respond? And he said, I tell her it is because I love her that I'm trying to get her to stop hurting herself. And I said, you know, as a father, can you now see how your heavenly father's desire to fiercely protect us from sin and evil is motivated not by some sadistic desire to make our life miserable, but rather from a heart of love for us? You see, God wouldn't really love us at all if he didn't care about how we live. If he just sat back and watched us self-destruct or make actions or take actions that would destroy us. God can't be a, a God of love without also being a holy and a just God. And so here is the conclusion of the matter. God is against my sin, but he is for me. He despises my sin, but he loves me unconditionally. And so if I am for sin, God stands against those desires because they cause my destruction. Even though as a Christ follower, I am now part of God's forever family, my heavenly father is not indifferent to my sin because in this life I will reap what I sow. Sin has consequences. But God is not angry with me when I struggle with sin. He is patient with me. And when I fall, when I fail, like a loving father helping his little toddler, he encourages me to get back up and to keep on keeping on. And as long as I surrender everything to him, he will use everything, the good, bad, and the ugly that comes my way, not to punish me, but to prune me, to discipline me, to help me grow as his child and to accomplish his purposes in and through my life. Some time ago, I read a story that I found very helpful. And understanding how God wants us to relate to his holiness and his justice. How he wants us to relate to him. It's a true story told by Dr. Barnhouse of a young couple that he married back in the 90s. A couple who were very much in love and very much committed to each other. Some weeks after they returned from their honeymoon, Barnhouse ran into them and he jokingly said to the groom, he said, you know, he asked if... His bride had burnt the roast yet. And she laughed and she said, Oh, I was afraid I was going to. And Barnhouse said, I couldn't help but notice you saying that you were afraid. Were you afraid that if the meal didn't turn out that your husband was going to beat you? And she smiled and said, Well, of course not. But he persisted. He said, you were afraid. She said, well, you know what I mean. 
Of course, Barnhouse knew what she meant. Her fear was not fright. It wasn't a dread. Her fear was a great desire to love and to serve and to please the one to whom she'd given herself entirely to. You see, at its core, the fear of God is a loving desire to please the one who loves you more than anyone could ever love you. It is to act justly, as Micah said, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God, not because you have to, but because you want to. This is the sweeter side, the tender side to the fear of God, to the holiness and to the justice of God. And frankly, it's, it's the most important side. See, we need to be in awe of God's holiness and respect his justice so that it will go well with us and it will go well with our children forever. But if we put an emphasis on obeying the laws of a frightening God that will produce an unhealthy kind of fear of God in us, that often results in legalism and joylessness. And that is the last thing that God wants. He doesn't want our performance, folks. He wants us. He wants our heart. He wants our affections, our love, freely given to him even as his love and grace are freely given to us. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. You see, fearing God in the right way and loving God go hand in hand. They're, they're, they're a pair. Psalm 147 says it this way, The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Augustine once said, if you but love God, you may do as you incline. And he was perfectly serious when he made that statement because a person who truly loves God will want to please God in every way in the same way that a groom who loves his wife will be consumed by a desire to please her alone. That is why Jesus and Paul summed up the entire law with a simple command. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, mind, and strength. Now you see, friends, my observation is a lot of people fail to understand this. God offers us salvation as a free gift through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus went to the cross to make it possible. However, this free gift that Christ offers is not a religious system. It is, is not a list of rules or a set of creeds to believe in. No, the gift that Jesus offers us is a relationship with himself. And yet, instead of just loving and enjoying people, and enjoying Jesus, people tend to fall into one of two ditches. Some slide into this ditch of legalism. They have this unhealthy fear of God, of his wrath and his judgment. And they kind of have their list out and all they're interested in is just tell me what I got to do. Tell me the bottom line. And they write down their little list of things to do and what not to do. They're just obsessed with trying to please God, keeping all the rules. And what they miss out on is the joy of knowing Jesus and having 
a wonderful friendship with him. Others slide into the ditch of license. They abuse the grace of God. These people are convinced that getting too close to Jesus will rob them of all the good and the fun things of life. And so they do just enough to meet what they feel is the minimum standard to appease God and to get into heaven. That's all they're concerned about. Just, Just give me the ticket to get to heaven. These people ask me how close they can come to sinning without crossing the line. Which is an attitude that tells me that they have no understanding of what it means to love God. Philip Yancey, he says it so well. He says, it's like a groom on his wedding night saying to his bride, Honey, I love you so much and I am eager to spend the rest of my life with you. But I need to work out a few details. Now that we're married, how far can I go with other women? Can I kiss them? Can I sleep with them? I mean, you don't mind a few affairs now and then, do you? I know it might hurt you, but just think of the opportunities you'll have to forgive me and extend grace to me. You see, such a man doesn't even understand the first thing about love. And this is how some people see their relationship with God. Instead of jumping in with both feet and giving their all to Jesus and experiencing the fullness of his friendship and the adventure that he created them for, they make him one of their mistresses. One of their idols. Unfortunately, Jesus will not operate on those terms. And I don't know of any man or woman that does either. Like any loving husband or wife, he wants to be the primary object of our love and affection. People say, I'm sort of a Christian. That's like saying I'm sort of pregnant. Or, you know, I'm sort of married. I mean, you know, try that sometime on your spouse. When someone asks you if you're married, just say, well, sort of. I mean, either you are or you're not. Jesus wants first place in our lives. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to struggle. doesn't mean we're not going to fall at times. But you see, God knows your heart. And please understand that what he is most concerned about is not the perfection of your life. What he is most concerned about is the direction of your life. Is it pointed to him? As long as the direction and the desire and the passion of your heart is to love God and to follow him, you are in right relationship with God even when you fall short at times. Ask my wife, I fall short as a husband More than I care to think about. But our marriage is strong because she knows she has the affection of my heart. And so it is in our relationship with the Lord. Loving God with all of your heart, soul, and mind means that you're preoccupied with Him. You don't have a divided heart. No split loyalties. No other gods. No other mistresses that you're serving. You have a new sensitivity to sin and to the things that break the heart of Jesus. You have a new sensitivity to the voice and direction of God in your life. You've surrendered your life. You're all to Him.
And the closer you get to the Lord and serve Him only, the more you will know Him, the more you will enjoy Him, and the more you will grow to become like Him. Would you please stand for closing prayer? We're going to close in a moment by singing an old hymn. My Jesus, I love thee. I know that you are mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Before we sing that song, I want to give opportunity again for us to respond to whatever it is that God's been speaking to us about. And I guess I'm wondering, can, can you, from your heart, sing, my Jesus, I love you? Does he really have first place in your heart? Have you surrendered all to him? Do you have a close and joyful relationship with Jesus? Or do you, would you have to admit that you see him more as a taskmaster? that you have to please rather than a friend that you get to enjoy. If I'm describing you at all, I want to encourage you just to make your peace with Jesus, to surrender everything to Him, to make Him the object of your affection. And just to tell Him you no longer want to see Him as a taskmaster and to ask Him to help you to relate to him as a friend and to enjoy him forever. We're just going to wait quietly for a moment with all heads bowed and eyes closed, please. I'm just going to ask you if, if there's just some things that you need to surrender or you need to talk to Jesus about or you just need to ask his help to help you to relate to him as a friend and to enjoy him forever, just come and make your way down here. We're just going to wait a, a moment or two. may the Lord bless you and keep you. And Lord, make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his amazing love and his wonderful peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.